You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And we've got a bag of tail for you today. But uh, obviously, we're in the midst of uh, a COVID lockdown in Victoria and um, we've been... Uh, given a um, serenade by the mainstream media attacking the Daniel Andrews government for all the wrong things, uh, failing to mention that the uh, major security breakdown at the uh, quarantine hotels probably should be slated against the National Security Company as they've called, a rebadged Chubb security. But uh, they think they're on a winner and we're only at the beginning of the lockdown and I'm sure that everybody who is feeling a little bit rattled by it all is feeling just a little bit underwhelmed by the underperforming Liberal Party. But anyway, not to mention the fact that uh, an attack on the uh, Andrews government seems to also have bypassed the mainstream media, especially Channel 7, that it's actually the uh, federal government's responsibility, the uh, abysmal state of the uh, aged care sector, which was ferociously privatised. Another example of how privatisation and care do not go together. But anyway... First up today, we hear why voting in your local council elections could be a winning strategy for your community's future. We hear from some voices that are often silenced, supporting the Living Incomes for Everyone campaign. And we hear the second instalment from a deer hunter in these Gippsland dispatches. A word from our first female Prime Minister on women in leadership roles and finally we hear from Dave Kerrin from Earthworker on his vision for a better future for workers. This week, no Kevin Healy rounding up the week. Kevin isn't feeling well so my thoughts are with him. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter.
Hi, um, my name's Maya Newell and I made a film called Gaby Baby and recently a film called In My Blood It Runs. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. You may have recently received an email or text encouraging you to vote in your local council elections. I joined Sue Bolton's campaign, Zoom, for re-election to Moreland Council. Sue is part of a ticket which includes Social Alliance and independent community candidates. I lifted a particularly pertinent piece where someone asks the important question of how effective can a local councillor be against the barrage of state and federal moves to support developers and privatisation of services. Um, the question I wanted to ask, and it is a bit of a question for Sue or any of the other real, uh, other candidates really, is um, how we can put all these great ideas into action um, through council because one of the contradictions, of course, of um, local government in Victoria and indeed Australia is the relatively um, low um, levels of power and um, competencies that they have. You know, we've been seeing calls to defund the police in the United States and many of those changes have occurred actually in the local government area. Um, there's been a real... Council's already hampered um, a lot um, in Victoria, but there's been a real push by the Labor state government to really restrict the roles of councils to the three R's, rates, uh, rubbish and um, roads. So um, my sort of question is how can we link those big picture sort of um, stances that we have, such as childcare, free childcare, for example, which is in our election platform, or, um, you know, building public housing, um, childcare and housing, for me particularly, are two sort of um, uh, two issues which councils have some sort of control over, but not much, as um, as Monica said, it's mainly in the state government's jurisdictions. Um, how do we really push those ahead um, without... Um, giving into the sort of complacency that um, Megan talked about, you know, these council bureaucrats are well paid, you know, they're, they are a full-time position, but they're, you know, greatly uh, more paid than councillors themselves who are elected by the people. So how do we really change um, local government uh, politics and how do we put it back in the hands of the people um, to have a real um, democratic voice uh, locally is what I'm asking. Put her hand up to uh, respond as well. So go for it, Megan. Yeah, thanks, Felix. Um, uh, just to respond, I think I think it might have been Leo who just said, you know, how are we going to breach that divide between council and what we do and the state and federal, um, you know, levels of government and, and what they provide, etc. Um, I think that for me, that's a twofold answer. And one of the things is, and one of the things that we want to do with this campaign is. It really is about a tectonic shift uh, in the way that politics is implemented at a council level. Uh, Sue has been the forerunner of that tectonic shift in Moreland. Now, I would love to see more people like her in our campaign be elected to assist her with that tectonic shift, but I'd also like to see other councils have the same sort of people-oriented councillors who are willing to rock the boat and that's one of the ways that we can actually uh, start to have that change. So it's all about, in this one particular part of the answer, it's all about elected officials um, linking, liaising um, with uh, state and federal government 
and getting them and pressuring them to actually implement changes that are people oriented. And that's part of what an elected official does. One of the other things um, that an elected official should be doing, and this is a very important part of our campaign because we don't necessarily believe that elected officials are the only way to, to, uh, to, to bring about community change. In fact, we are not the most important way. One of the most important ways to bring about community change is to involve the community and to build a grassroots campaign. Now, Sue's done this on the ground really well, and in particular, um, something that I've observed is the, um, the upfield duplication, the duplication of the upfield line, and the campaign that basically Sue built from the ground up. Now, the council was ignoring this. They didn't think it was their issue. But um, once uh, Sue had built up the Upfield Transport Alliance, once she'd built up a movement and talked to people and made them understand the issue and the issue was broader and made it and had a, a broader impact, then people on the council were forced to recognise that this was A, an absolutely real problem that people in the community had and B, people were willing to agitate for it. So two things that we need to do. So as, as elected members, we need to agitate for change at the local council level, at the state level, and at the federal level. But number two, we need to actually campaign to build grassroots movements. That's so important. That's part of what our job as a councillor should be. But unfortunately, with complacent councils across Australia, we don't have that. And then there was someone else who was talking about Faulkner. Now, um, just living in this area, it's really easy to spot. Faulkner is one of the most ignored suburbs in, in the Moreland City Council area. And Sue has a lot to say about that, I'm sure. But, you know, they get ignored for services. They get ignored for things like public transport, for childcare, even things like, um, you know, toilets in parks. They are so ignored. And, and one of the things that we need to do is we need to highlight the fact that um, there are so many issues in Faulkner and surrounds that have been consistently ignored by council that should never be ignored. Uh, why is it that that area is ignored? And, and I can tell you now that one of the reasons is that it is a lower socioeconomic area uh, and I guess council don't particularly care about them, but we do and this is part of what we want to do to, to bring about change and that's all I wanted to say. Cool. Thanks, Megan. And... Um... Just before we head into the next item, I think uh, Sue deserves a right of reply for some of those things. So if you have yes. anything, go for it, Sue. Yes, and actually thanks, Leo, for starting off with the question that you raised because basically what happens is state and federal government and the local council bureaucracy want to lower people's expectations about what council can do. I mean, in fact, they want to do that in a society-wide level because they want people to think that you need the private sector to provide services, otherwise services won't be provided. So, you know, now privatisation has been going so many years, some people don't even know that um, some things used to be publicly provided, like public transport. Um, Brunswick Council used to provide electricity, used to have its own electricity substation and that when that was privatised under Kennett that money was put into a housing reserve to create more affordable housing. The old St Kilda Council used to provide public housing. I don't know the whole history of that and exactly what it was but that became the basis of Port Phillip housing which of course you know that's one of the housing associations it's not as good as public housing um, but there has been a past where councils have done a lot more. Um, 
and there would have been an involvement of the Communist Party in council, certainly in Sydney. I don't know the whole history of Melbourne, but um, but there hasn't been that much written about that those experiences. And there, so there was always um, where the Communist Party was involved historically a push for councils to to do more. Um, and I think corporatisation of councils happened with council amalgamations in the early 90s under Kennett. Mm -hmm. And so to do what um, Leo suggested around things like, um, you know, issues like public housing or pushing for things like free trial care and so forth, it's um, you the only way really of pushing these issues properly is by um, not only pushing from the inside but also pushing from the outside and you don't um, you just don't um, you you not you can't break through the bureaucracy and and uh, and so forth without some sort of um, community campaigns to demonstrate a that there's a need for, for that issue to be resolved and b for council to back it and to um, brush aside um, comments from councillors and bureaucracy that um, that it's not council business anything can be council business and the right wing do make certain things council business even though they're not roads rates and rubbish like anzac day and all sorts of things um you know they make all sorts of things council business for right wing causes if they get away with it but they don't want us to think that providing services to the community is council business and some councils have outsourced so much like mornington peninsula council that they just really administer contracts they don't really have a council workforce apart from the bureaucracy and so um you know there are definitely attempts to take councils in that direction and the only barrier between um uh, to stop that happening is the community and the community speaking up and we won't win all of the fights but if we don't engage in any of these fights then we'll lose so so much the councils will be able to get away with implementing just a purely business agenda and the way planning works it's all horse trading so um even things like the so-called good design scorecard, which I don't have time to go into, but it's um, we'll put in one or two environmentally sustainable features if you let us go above the height limit. So, and the state government encourages that horse trading um, framework. And really, we need to get away from this framework, which allows this horse trading will do this small good thing in returning to do this bad thing or whatever. Thank <laughs> you.
director of the film, The Boys Who Said No, Draft Resistance in the Vietnam War. I'm really pleased to be here on 3CR. I'm an old listener-sponsored radio producer myself and worked at the first listener-sponsored station in the world, KPFA, Berkeley, part of the Pacifica Network. So good work. Keep it up. Thanks. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. A break from COVID lockdown and a time to think about possible positive futures as we make our way out of the medical morass. The Living Income for Everyone campaign is focused on the upcoming budget in September when it is expected that the neocons in the federal government will live up to their reputations of bankrupt policies and remove the higher job seeker rate and return recipients to below poverty levels. At the launch of a live campaign, a diverse collective of voices threw their weight behind the campaign, putting meat to the bones of those affected by the challenge of insecurity in a modern economy. Um, yeah, good evening, everyone. I'm from Migrante Melbourne, which is part of Migrante Australia, a grassroots community organization of Filipino and Filipino Australians. Um, it's obvious that we are here to fight for the rights and welfare, for um, especially for those that are migrants. Sadly, the COVID pandemic is here to make the migrants, especially those that are on temporary visas, visible, finally visible. <laughs> we finally um, have the general Australian public have suddenly realized that, oh, my God, there are so many people that are suffering, that are on international student visas, that are on temporary visas. But then we were made visible. But again, we were made invisible in terms of the stimulus packages that is being offered. Nothing has been thrown um, to, our, um, to, to our community. Um, and also, we know that the migrants are the ones that are taking those what we call the shitty jobs, yeah? Um, and not even paid um, properly. 
and are on even being paid on a cash on hand basis, which basically makes us more invisible. So it's like going back again to the slavery. Yeah. Um, and as much as I want to be positive, even women migrants are put in a darker position because at the moment we have these so-called partner migrants or those women who are on temporary visas but are um, experiencing domestic and family violence. The sad reality is these women are the ones who are not being accepted in women refugees. They are not even given the chance to be put in a safe accommodation. They're being told to just basically go home, which is even pre-COVID, it is very human. Now it's impossible. So these women have their children with them and are just there in our community. And we are forced to take them at our own risk because they have nowhere to go. So we are basically made invisible. And it's not only about economic, it's not about racism. The economic racism is very real in our community. We are treated as same as permanent residents and citizens in terms of tax exaction. But in terms of the benefits, we are nowhere to be found. And because we always wanted to say that migrants us, especially as Filipinos are here because we were forced of the poverty that is happening back home, what is the Australian government doing is they are funneling a lot of funds, billions of dollars through military aid to the Philippines. This military aid is being used to ravage our communities through mining companies. And mind you guys, some of the biggest mining corporations are Australian owned. And that is um, you know, um, wrecking havoc in our economy in the Philippines and um, displacing a lot of women and children. So military aid, that's the solution of the Australian government. And there's a lot of activists that is being killed through that military aid that is being used by the government of the Philippines to suppress the people. So, of course, we are very much happy to be part of the life movement. Any movement that is for collective action to free us from these problems that is brought about by capitalism, we will support it. And we are saying that at this, especially at this pandemic time, no one is to be left behind, especially migrants. So yeah, long live international solidarity. Evening, comrades. Uh, I'm coming to you from the uh, land of the Kondamuka people, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Living in comes for everyone. Who would not support that, that concept? The MUA vets in Queensland and the Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition right across Australia certainly do. That it took a pandemic for a government to finally admit that the unemployment benefit is totally inadequate is a disgrace. And I say government as successive governments have not raised the rate in real terms for 26 years. And in a wealthy country like Australia, this is unbelievably cruel and punitive. This government has systematically attempted 
to turn public opinion against all welfare recipients, including AIDS pensions. The continued vilification and demonising of the disadvantaged are a hallmark of this mob and a pitiful attempt to shift the blame. You know, the damage done to welfare recipients to repeatedly read sensationalised headlines accusing them of being leaners as opposed to lifters is immeasurable and lacking any sense of empathy or understanding. The majority of people on any form of welfare, through no fault of their own, are doing everything they can to survive and improve their, li improve their lives under extremely stressful and dif difficult circumstances. They need encouragement, not this constant demonising and questioning of their self-worth. In our advocacy work with the Fair Go Pensioners Coalition, we are constantly told the country cannot afford an increase to the welfare. A lie, and a lie that continues to feed rising income inequality. What we cannot afford is corporate tax evasion, corporate welfare, franking credits, negative gearing, and a whole host of initiatives aimed at, I've got to say, in the main, wealth creation. Add the disgraceful and immoral defence budget to the mix, and it debunks that line. We can certainly afford a fairer, more equitable welfare system, and this campaign demands one. We should not and will not be content with a so-called snapback or aiming at a return to normal. But with today's changes, it's clear that the right-wing ideologues in the LNP are intent on heading down that very path. With Morrison this evening saying it will entice people back to work. An absolute insult and a calculated one at that. We need to fight for a better normal, a better normal for all welfare recipients to live their lives with dignity and hope. Is that too much to ask? Of course not. In a perverse way, the coronavirus has given us through this life campaign an opportunity to fight for permanent and meaningful change to our welfare system. So comrades, the fight is on. Let's collectively give it our best shot. Thank you, comrades. Everyone, it's great to be here. I'm based on Rwandri country and I'd also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Um, so I've been volunteering with Young Campaigns and Tomorrow Movement and I, I joined because I wanted to support more young people from all walks of life speak up and contribute to big decisions, including the decisions regarding the economy and how it impacts all of us, including young people. Young Campaigns is a movement built by young people who are willing to support and dedicate their time to create a society that puts everyday people first, not just big business. But to do that, we need to work with other organisations and groups whose values align with ours. And that's why we've been a part of this campaign since it started. Like so many others, I lost my job during the crisis without warning. Um, and I would have been left to live off about $300 a fortnight if it wasn't for the increased rate. The Life Campaign considers the economic injustice ordinary people, including young people, face not only during a crisis, but every day, simply because of the way the society is built. Before the crisis, Australians aged between 21 and 35 made up about 30% of those receiving new start. And that's just one reason why it's so important young people have an amplified voice during this campaign. But despite the tough climate, 
there have been so many young people across Australia who have gotten involved with Tomorrow Movement because they don't want to settle for a society where people are made to live off $40 a day. A lot of the people supporting this campaign are currently receiving job seeker or youth allowance and understand how limiting that income is to live a meaningful life. Some of the ways that we've supported young people to act include organising actions, providing resources and running trainings that provide a safe space for discussion for all the new leaders. Young Campaigns wants to fight for a fair society and that includes a livable rate. No one can live or should be living off $40 a day. And that's why being a part of this campaign is so important. Being able to work and build off everyone here today will enable us to reach and inspire more young people across the country. By working together, we can gather voices of everyday people who have had to live off close to nothing and make sure their voices are heard, acknowledged and responded to. Thanks.
Kajigurujan, Kanderman. This is Stephen Pigram from Up Broomway, Yaru Country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hi, this is Fiona and you're listening to another East Gippsland Dispatch. Last program, we spoke to Gary Plumley of Sandbar Night Stalkers about his idea for transforming the feral deer problem in East Gippsland into an arts-based food, fibre and fashion business opportunity. This week in part two, Gary talks about how a bill going through Parliament at the moment will permit licensed local meat processing, which is the next stage in Gary's plan for a mobile meat processing service in East Gippsland. This interview was by Catherine Van Wilgenberg and Nilmina de Silva, both float artists in residence in East Gippsland in February 2020. I was approached by Delp here through the food cluster and they said, we want to get you a grant, Gary, to get this up and running. But conditional on you getting it, the deer carcasses must go from here over the mountains to how long at Wangaratta. Why do they need to go there? Well, that's the only licensed game abattoir in Victoria, the only spot that game can be processed. But let me tell you, we don't want your carcasses to go there. Um, For human consumption, the Victorian government is tendering in an international bid for a pet food contract from America that's worth tens of millions of dollars a year. And they they have funded a multi-million dollar development of the How Long Abattoir over there, and they then needed people on the ground to get wild meat harvested for free, in effect, and they were going to pay me a grant to set up a pilot study. And I respectfully declined, and I said, two parts of this. Um, I don't believe that a prime game source that's better than the food source from any farm should end up being rendered down for pet food. I can't see why I would be out giving up all my nights to hunt and to do all those things when culturally and, and emotionally and, and for every reason I believe it should be deliverable to the public as a prime food source. And even if it could go over there, the food miles and the logistics of me to get that meat over there, to use an abattoir, the meat's already dead. Mm. I've shot it. It's only a matter of processing it, storing it, cutting it up, and turning it into value-added produce. If it has to go over there because that's the only registered... Refrigeration. Yeah, yeah. So I said, I need, I need a field harvest vehicle, given your laws in Victoria. I need a processing base refrigeration plant. I need a third processing and licensing facility. Then I still need an abattoir. So this is this presentation at the end of this I'm showing you has started this thing in Victoria. So let's just... Let's go through this, yeah. So community working together to create sustainable new economies in East Gippsland. Why does an abattoir for farmed meat 
have to be separate to what I need. Like not, it's not, no, no, it's not allowed to be on the same processing line because of government legislation. <laughs> Remember that PrimeSafe is a, a government like WorkSafe created by the Jeff Kennett government, and it was a means for the growth of government departments, and they've run right. So the whole licensing structure that PrimeSafe is trying to get 100% recoverable back from every industry they govern. HCCAP and PrimeSafe govern the fishing boats here. And the fishing boats have massive overheads, and even if they're not catching fish, or the season's closed because fisheries don't let them get scallops, they've still got to pay all the licensing fees, which makes their business not viable for two seasons in a row. And it, it's, a, it's a continuous grab. So PrimeSafe says, we will legislate poultry against quail, cattle against beef, and you can't use the same processing line. They call other meats, which could be goat, farmed goat, or it could be horse, might be able to go to a specialist butcher shop, an abattoir who gets a licence, but game can never go there. So right now, even if I did get a licence here to legally hunt deer, which is, I can get that tomorrow. I've done all the precursors to it, but I've got nowhere to get it processed except how long. So until the legislation changes, I'm in a rock and a hard place. I'm a great fan of Aldo Leopold, who was the first conservationist in America. He was the father of hunting and conservation. But land is community. We abuse land because we're regarded as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with the love and respect. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of the deer hunting organisations have used Aldo Leopold as the father of conservation and hunting and said, if, if we followed his guide, we would all be in good stead. What are Samba Night Stalkers about? We're a community service in East Gippsland set up for the removal of problem deer on private land. Our range of hunting techniques may include the installation of night vision game cameras. We may decide that thermal imaging or spotlighting is the best solution. Or in the case of heavily wooded rainforest gullies, we will employ conventional deer stalking, include the use of a companion hunting dog. In some cases, we may use a tree stand mobile platform for better visibility. That's, that's the methods that I employ. We're working together with Float. This was from the outset. And other friends, F-Inc and F-Root for the delivery of the food side of things. Our plan is more than just harvesting problem deer. It's community working together. Our charter, with the help of other like-minded people and community groups, is to operate as the steering team responsible for the feasibility and implementation of a new economy based on problem wild deer. So it's about community engagement, it's about operations, it's about governance, it's about research, and it's about education. Turning the problem into an opportunity is what I've tried to say to government. It's an opportunity, not a problem. And we're doing it for the creation of sustainable new economy based on the controlled shooting, harvesting, processing and value-adding to wild-shot deer from private property in East Gippsland. I'm an avid cook. These are all my own recipes. These are pickled beetroots and kohlrabi out of my own garden. And We tried to cook some medicine the other day yeah. and it came out really awful. So if you're running some cooking classes, because yep. I Googled it on the internet and it said you had to soak it with vinegar first. Is that Oh, correct? no! 
That's what you do with pickled onions. But I saw everywhere. I googled quite a few things, and they said to take the gamey taste out. You have to soak it no, overnight. No, you want you want to keep the, the misconception. If you chase any animal in fair chase, and if you chase it with hounds over thirty kilometres or thirty miles, that's a doddle for a deer. But it will build up lactic acid, and at the time it's shot by a hunter, the meat will be like trying to eat a marathon runner. When that deer has run all those miles, its, its hormones are pumping, its adrenaline's going, its testosterone, everything's up there, and the muscles are as hard as a rock. That animal tastes gamey, particularly if it's a stag. But if you do what I do and the animal has walked out of the forest, its head down, down the vine rows in the vineyard, and it's picking the new grape growth, and I'm sitting up on the hill with a night vision scope or a telescopic sight, and I go bang, and it hasn't taken three steps out of bed, it's going to taste fantastic because yeah. it doesn't have any of those problems. So the meat that is sold at Woolies, where has it come from? Has it come from... That would be farmed. Like no, that's no. farmed. No, there, there is no process in Australia to buy yeah. wild venison at the moment. It's illegal Australia-wide. OK, how can we achieve this? We have a number of community partner groups, plus talented artists and artisans who are keen to explore the benefits of certified processing of wild deer by products, the pelts, the antlers and other associated elements. An arts-based design and fashion economy for the design and creation of bespoke leather and suede fashion garments and accessories that may also form the beginnings of an arts-based new economy, all from problem wild deer. So this, this is the way we approached it. Our new plan is compelling. We are keen to create a sustainable win-win-win economy for food, for fibre and for fashion. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, Politics with Your Wheaties. Julia Gillard is a busy woman. One of the hats she wears is the chair of the board of the Beyond Blue. She was on an Australian Institute webinar recently talking about the beefing up of online services to help people through the pandemic. But I was a little bit more interested in her new book about women in leadership roles. Has it become a less chauvinistic society because women have reached the top seat in governments around the world? This is what she had to say. Use your mention of um, uh, women there to uh, segue to um, your new book, um, Women in Leadership. Uh, and uh, a fascinating book for anybody who hasn't seen it yet. And um, uh, having um, watched your prime ministership up close, um, you'd have to say one of the more depressing elements of it was your treatment as a woman. Um, and one of the things, the, the uh, while it's an uplifting book in some ways and a, a book of inspiration about um, being involved in leadership positions if you are a woman, and uh, um, but one of the messages in in the book actually is that. In some ways, things haven't got any better for women in leadership uh, positions and uh, reflection maybe that, you know, it was better for Margaret Thatcher than it was uh, now. Um, uh, Michelle Bachelet uh, saying that her second term was uh, worse than her first. Um, to your own prime ministership, um, uh, where um, some of the more, most unedifying moments in uh, Australian political history. You know, I, I think of those signs that uh, were behind Tony Abbott uh, 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 that have been much discussed. Much discussed. Um, the endless discussion of um, your reproductive choices uh, or your fashion. 
um, uh, and a, a pretty um, confronting analysis through the book that maybe things haven't got any better. What do you make of that? Yeah, I'm an optimist uh, overall, but very frustrated about the pace of change. So um, I, I agree with you. Uh, in the book, there are some statistics and some anecdotes that are truly confronting. Um, of those, uh, there's we recount a wonderful piece of research done by an Australian academic, Blair Williams. Uh, she studied the uh, British newspapers in the first two weeks after Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister all the way back in 1979 and compared it to the first two weeks after uh, Theresa May became Prime Minister and found that the coverage is more gendered now. Now, I don't take from that the message that we've gone backwards on attitudes to gender. I think what it is is the changing media landscape and that things would be said now about a woman uh, that would not have been said about out of a sense of politeness back in 1979. Um, you know, for example, there's that uh, picture of Theresa May sitting with the uh, Scottish uh, leader, both women. They're talking about Brexit, about the integrity of the United Kingdom, about whether Scotland will be uh, breaking off because they want to stay in the European Union. So you couldn't have a more pressing, uh, dramatic, nation-changing political issue and they've both got skirts on and they've both got their legs crossed and a newspaper goes with the headline, forget Brexit, what about Legsit? You know, who's got the better legs? Um, now, that would not have happened in Margaret Thatcher's day out of a sense of, you know, sort of politeness and respect. And Michelle Bachelet from Chile, who we interviewed for the book in reflecting in the difference between her first period as president and second period of pre as president, pointed to social media. So one thing that, that is getting worse and that we talk about in the book is uh, the, the media landscape, social media is enabling things to be said uh, about women that were historically not out there in the public realm and we've got to act on that. And we uh, have in the book some standout lessons for the media about how they should make sure their coverage isn't gendered and uh, some appeals really to the social media companies to do much better on cracking down on online misogynistic abuse, often threats of rape and death uh, directed at women who are in the public square, particularly women politicians and particularly uh, women politicians of colour. Um, but what makes me optimistic despite all of that um, is I've seen a lot of change in my lifetime I'm seeing a new intensity to this discussion about gender equality. I'm seeing an emerging generation of young women leaders who are, you know, full of energy for the fight. Uh, we talk about waves of feminism, and I do genuinely think we are seeing another one build, and the coming generation is uh, too frustrated uh, that they are going to emerge into a gendered environment to leave that um, as the, you know, circumstances for their working lives. I think they're going to be a powerful breakthrough generation. Uh, so overall, I'm optimistic and very encouraging of women who have got a passion for change to go into uh, political leadership, even though there is still some gendered barriers to get through. Precious memories? No? 
Lumpsome Road. This train. And I'm going to see how many are going to ride on it. Because uh, this train is a 
My name's Nick. I present a show on 3CR on Sundays at 2pm called In Psychedelia, where we focus on drug culture, drug policy uh, and drug issues. It's been a bit of a strange time because I uh, also work in the harm reduction sector, specifically going to festivals and parties. So all of our work quickly dried up with COVID-19. But one of the questions that I suppose the festival community in particular has been asking is how do we remain connected? Because it is a community. And I think that's the the first reason that people come to these events. The music is there, the art is there, all of these things are aspects to it, but it's really about the people who are coming and bringing those things and sharing those things. And I've seen some innovation online, and I think that's something that I hope to see more of, more use of innovative technological solutions to connect community, to help creatives reach wider audiences and really build something together. I hope that you're finding ways to remain connected to your community during these odd times. 3CR is a good way to do it, so keep listening. We're coming to the end of the show, and we are going to finish on an upbeat. No one listening to Dave Kerrin from Earthworker Collective can fail to feel a better future is possible. He was talking at an event put on by the Community Assembly in Victoria themed How to Stop an economic war. I want to start by um, acknowledging uh, the, the the desperate need, especially today when we look at things like the uh, the uh, global pandemic, uh, for acknowledging the First Nations. Um, with Earthworker, we took a position uh, nearly 25 years ago now that uh, we would look at the creation of workplaces that were owned and controlled by Australian people democratically. Uh, we would look at uh, practical treaty work and, and therefore looking at a, a, a minimum as a start, a minimum of a 5% intake for worker owners that includes the First Nations people that, that made up by them. Um, and so we, we hold to that position uh, and uh, even as we rise from our knees and get to our feet, uh, this, this process that Helen's talking about, we're very mindful of, of that. I was blown away by Humphrey's uh, report. He has that capacity to put things so succinctly. It gives you a really good workable understanding and helps you in your day-to-day work to frame what you're doing and keep you sane along the way. Um, and that process he described, I mean, in my words, I suppose, uh, of, of seeing first, second, third world um, taken from 
the concepts based on nations and, and, and taken into every nation state. And we've seen that process, haven't we, over, over from the 70s un, until now. Um, and Dave, uh, Dave Fox described the, the effect of that on, a, on a, uh, you know, uh, millions of Australian families. Uh, the, the fact that capitalism is constantly changing, so, so true. And, and, and so what are some of the factors that are causing that change as, as we sit here today? Uh, from our perspective, um, those years ago when we set up Earth Worker, it was clear with reports that were coming out from the scientific community, from the environment, social movement, and from unions around the world as well, that there was a new um, uh, environmental uh, and climate imperative uh, acting upon capitalism, uh, acting upon all of us as a result. Um, on the other hand, we saw a capitalism that uh, was was running out of ways in which to grow, um, uh, you know, hence to the, the movement to neoliberalism. I mean, it was being thrown out of colony after colony with the support of countries like the Soviet Union and China. We saw countries achieve independence, um, and then after that, often thrown back into free trade zones within their own borders again. I think there's something. There's, there are hundreds of free trade zones in Vietnam, for instance, where where you where there are no labour rights and no environmental laws. Um, so we've seen that process. We've felt its effects. The pandemic is showing it clearly, uh, where privatisation, casualisation, sham contracting, and the offshoring of jobs um, has slowed our ability and capacity to deal with the pandemic. Um, Dan Andrews gets on the TV every day to his credit. And, and, and that's basically what he's outlining. He's outlining the, the, the economic and political and cultural effects of neoliberalism. And, and where we have troubles, it's, being, it, it's, it's underpinned by that, that reality. With a global uh, um, uh, climate and, and environment crisis, we can take that to the power of 10. I mean, we've seen capitalism un unable to mitigate against the spread of uh, virus globally uh, because it's not set up for that. It can't plan properly. Um, uh, but the bushfires um, of the last season uh, gave us a, a small taste of what runaway climate change can look like. Um, so at the moment, if you look at some of the figures that are coming out, from our scientific community globally. It is, it is beyond worrying, uh, especially when you look at it in terms of our capacity to respond. So at the South Pole, between 1989 and 2018, we've seen a 0.6 degree rise per decade. 0.6 degree rise per decade. That's three times greater than the rise globally. In turn, that's having an effect on um, the, the oceanic temperatures. And so one of the biggest problems we face at the moment is in the Southern Ocean, where the warming is, is um, affecting the Antarctic shelf itself. So speeding up the melt uh, beyond the capacity for our models to keep up. So the task ahead of us, uh, and, and indeed for, for capitalism, is, is, is to work out ways to, to deal with this. Um, and capitalism, well, if we look at them, what, what do we see? We see a, 
again, its emphasis on military and militarism uh, as, as, as the means to grow the economy. Um, it, it's the capitalist dream, isn't it, where you create a product, it, it's fired off in the form of a missile and then you replace it again. And, and, and uh, you know, so what are we looking at there? We're looking at permanent war. And what do we see around the world? We see the drive towards warfare. We see, you know, these companies, as, as they always did, selling to both sides in wars. Um, the risk for Australia in that, of course, and we can see it beginning to happen, and I think Dave alluded to it a little bit in his, in his address, is that, that there'll be an over-reliance to rebuild our manufacturing in Australia um, to rest upon the foundations of, uh, of militarism. You know, we don't share a border, we're, we're secure, there are enough laws in there now to run a Gasapo. So, you know, we can secure a military industry on a, on a large, massive scale. So we've got to be better than that. I know we are than to, to rebuild manufacturing based upon killing our brothers and sisters around the world. So, however, history shows you can be right and lose. And uh, we can be correct about militarism. We can be correct about climate emergency and how we ought to deal with it and, and lose. So the question now is how do we here in Australia and in terms of our uh, solidarity movements with fellow workers around the world, how do we build a movement that moves us beyond protest? How do we build a movement that can begin to build a class solidarity which, which finally includes the, the ways in which we meet our needs? Accepting, of course, that, that capitalism will, will put roadblocks in place. It will destroy where it can. It will do everything it can, just as it's done in any country or part of country where people have tried to take uh, their, their, their affairs into their own hands. But, of course, that, that's never stopped um, people who fight for human liberation and, and, and it won't stop us in the future. So most people, when, we, when they think about Earthworker, they think, oh, they think of a little factory in Morwell, and we're still trying to get a, a, a I'm not going to sit here and say we, we've found the answers. Uh, we, we are struggling to get things like basic things, like commitment from a government to give us procurement. Now, you would have thought, you know, with all the talk around Bansback out of, out of COVID, you've got a factory. It's shovel ready. It's in the heart of the coal region where we know there are going to be more closures. Not rocket science, is it? You, you, you'd surely you'd say, well, all right, product, it's the best on the market here in Australia. Even from a capitalist point of view, you'd say, well, okay, well, no, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen by magic. It'll only ever happen because people like us get behind it and push and push and march and demand. And... But it'll happen one day. So in Earthworker, we thought, well, if we don't go big and bold, this little effort that we're making with a lot of work, um, We'll go nowhere. So because we're a, a, we're a, a, a Victorian Trades or Council project, we, we went to the building industry group of unions. So we went to the, the four unions. So um, the, the CFWMEU, uh, the Electrical Trade Union, the Plumbers, and, of course, uh, Dave's union, the AMWU. And we put a proposal that... We wanted to put a powering Victoria Cooperative Steering Committee together to drill down and look at what would it take, what would it look like to green Victoria and to do that via cooperatives that the working people owned and controlled, using our socialised capital to do it. 
a superannuation, which, by the way, is still described as private capital. Uh, Turnbull, when he went over and spoke to the American government, said, we do great things back home. Oh, yeah, we do great things. We, with our public-private partnerships, we, we get our, our private capital in the form of superannuation and we invest it. You know, uh, even in our own movement, we talk about the employer contribution to superannuation. Well, there never was one. It's work we've done. We've been paid for it and we set part of the wage aside. Even the commission, when first super first came about, super was described variously, but as the unused component of the workers' wage. So we've got to establish, finally establish, democratic control over that socialised capital. And we believe a cooperative structure is, is one of the best ways to do that, at least to provide that as an option for people. A cooperative of workers that can direct the way in which that super is invested and used. So it, it, it's become obvious that as we've gone ahead, nearly 12 months work now with the Powering Victoria Cooperative Steering Committee, that there were two areas of, of work. Uh, one was around energy efficiency, uh, where our workers go in, do an audit, our tradies and labourers go in, do the work, and if the working people can't pay the, 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 the service, the work, the labour, uh, and, and the goods that go into their house or their, their office, um, then they can, by becoming a member of Cooperative Power Australia, uh, the union retailer, uh, they can pay it off on their energy bill. So a nice circular set of economics that provides us with the capacity to put social justice in place. The second area of work was green housing. Um, and we believe by the end of the year, we'll have our first parcel of land. So we've, we've put a crawl, walk and run stage into the housing. Uh, the crawl would be between one and 200 homes, so small. Seven-star rated homes, we've found the home. And I'm, as I speak, I'm trying to bring this up. Um, and basically, uh, by workers joining um, a housing cooperative, an earthworker housing cooperative, uh, which they can do by directing a wage increase that they might achieve through their union's efforts. Uh, they can become a member and they can go on a list. We want to take young workers and their families and put them in homes. We want to make this as part of union work so that we're not simply um, uh, making demands on, on private employers and governments in relation to wages and conditions, but that we are beginning to put our own social policies in place and creating a pole of attraction uh, for our superannuation, our socialised capital. And we want to do that globally. So we're looking at um, SSFTAs, Social Sector Fair Trade Agreements. So every time we put a, a cooperative in place, a factory, a workplace in place, we want to reach out to our fellow workers in Argentina, our fellow workers in Venezuela, in Cuba, in China, in North America. We want to put that factory there under their control. We want to take cooperatives that they might have built and put them here under our workers' control so that we begin to mobilise through solidarity around work and the response to climate emergency through that work um, 
to build the critical mass of workers' capital that will begin to see us be able to, um, as Helen said before, learn, to learn, to learn. How do we run a workplace? How do we federate that into a group of workplaces and manage that? How do we build that workers' democracy from the ground up? And yes, where we're, we're going to have to fight to build it and to retain it against people who would wish to take that away, that, that the solidarity around that is far better than solidarity around merely the protest no. What do we want? Well, we want this group of people to stop being kicked around in Venezuela or wherever it is. And when do we want it? Well, we want it now. We want to take the truths that Marx and others from his time onwards outlined and make that real, give it life. We could not be any better suited and more ready to run this world than we are now. And we ought to be very proud of that. And we ought to be very proud of being able to outline the ways in which we can make that happen on the ground. So we talked before about Indigenous um, worker rights to worker ownership. So we've got this three fives, we call them the three fives, the three five percents, five percent Indigenous into every intake, five percent of women into the trades, and five percent of every surplus we make to go to the community sector because government's walking away from the lowest income families. Overall, that's a vast generalisation, but overall under neoliberalism, we've seen it, haven't we? We've seen the, the most um, disadvantaged, um, made more disadvantaged by the fact that um, uh, uh, profit has been put before absolutely everything else. So already, even before we've got to our feet properly, while we're still being down there on our knees, we've actually uh, we've, we've put solar hot water systems into Father Bob Maguire homes. You'll see that photo of Bob there. Um, into hospices, etc. And we want to challenge small to medium enterprises even within capitalism, to go with us on that journey. Again, to lead from the front. I mean, we're saying we're better than them. It's nothing personal. We're saying we're better than them. That we have, we have a social view of the world and a collectivist view of how humankind has advanced, that when, when that's used pro appropriately and adequately, that we can, take, we, can, we can actually build a better world. Um, that doesn't mean we stop challenging them and we ought to challenge them. And we say to them, look, between zero point, I don't know what the lowest number is, I was no good at arithmetic, 0.1% of your surplus, throw it into the community sector with us. Let's not leave our brothers and sisters behind. The women who are, who, are, who are being bashed and they need housing. Well, we need to build that. If government won't do it, we do it. You know, if they're walking away from the public sector, well, we'll socialise them. It'll become part of the social sector of the Australian economy. So we've got, to, we've got to create the appropriate means for those sort of things to happen. So going back to the Power and Victoria Cooperative um, Steering Committee, because I sort of want to um, finish up on that. But the things we, we identified is the, the rollout of a 1.4 megawatt battery storage system. So you'll see there the, the, the sonic battery. So it's sodium nickel chloride. No lithium, no lead. Capitalists don't like it because there's no extractive industry in it. It's salt. It's safe. It's more powerful. 
uh, unlike say your, you know your musk batteries um, it doesn't need 24 hour a day aircon on it uh, it can get wet without exploding unlike the lithium-ion batteries um, and a 1.4 megawatt system is a good uh, way of underpinning the grid um, and it, with, with a, a decentralized um, uh, power structure and so remember we're looking at a, a, a form of producing power that is that is decentralized but is also owned um, collectively and uh, with the sonic battery we've also developed up a, a uh, uh, an emergency unit that can be taken into fire prone or flood prone prone areas so in countries that were called third world countries um, uh, uh, you know their capacity to respond to emergency and mitigate against emergency is very low because they're poor countries. So we want to put in place alliances, again, solidarity that builds around that and puts the appropriate sort of technologies in place. This little trailer for tradies, for farmers, for councils, instead of a diesel generator, it runs off the battery. You know, we, there, are, there are ways we can build um, through a construction um, industry cooperative an earthworker construction cooperative which is that's one uh, one logo for it that's been suggested um, that uh, we, we can begin to look at a, a union movement that now that that um, uh, isn't there fighting for a bigger share of this world um, only it's right that we fight for a bigger share of this world because of course that's our labor that creates everything in it uh, but uh, there's still an element around that of us responding to uh, the, the, a capitalist orchestra conductor. Uh, we need to conduct our own band, uh, write our own music uh, and enjoy our own party. Uh, and that's got to involve uh, a capacity to meet uh, the basic needs of humankind for, for shelter, for education, for health, for peace, and for us to be able to define what a, an economy that has uh, Mother Nature uh, at its heart, not as a feed trade into production, but working with the, uh, the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the lungs of the planet, basically, to work with that in, our, in the ways in which we produce and meet our needs. Long way to go. We've got a lot to learn and a lot of mistakes to make. Certainly I and to a lesser extent, Earthworker have made just about every possible mistake you could make. Um, but uh, it, 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 mistakes are a uh, provide an opportunity to learn, don't they? That's always been the left view. And, and, and I, I, I look around the world and I see it remain uh, as a left view. Um, now, I'm just trying to do something here. Eh? I've got, actually got back. There you go. It's the first time I've done that. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to finish up by, by uh, stressing that um, these are things that uh, have been done before in different ways. So Earthworker hasn't invented anything new. We've just gone back to our forebears and looked at what they did, uh, why they did it, uh, and tried to replicate um, the, the best in, in that from the practice of our forebears uh, across the left, the historic left. Um, uh, we want to introduce concepts like uh, social sector fair trade agreements and the global solidarity built around work and response to climate emergency um, and to link that into the human rights struggles and the other struggles of our fellow workers around the world. 
we want to popularise the idea of public social partnerships, PSPs instead of PPPs, uh, where we take our socialised capital and we link it to uh, levels of government who want to involve themselves in an equitable way. Um, uh, in the projects around building a new green power grid, uh, the, 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 the grids that we need, the new grid, green transport grid, uh, the new green water grid, uh, the, the, the new green training we need to do in all government departments, um, for instance, repurposing the military um, to uh, play the role of, of mitigating against climate emergency. Um, we want to put public social partnerships in place that economically and financially begin that process. Um, we want to, in terms of our social sector fair trade agreements, just to go back to that, we want to um, link our organised labour movements and our cooperative movements. For instance, in North America, there are over 11,000 workers' co-ops. You never hear that about the American economy because, again, it's, uh, well, there are only five states in America where you can, where you can actually set up a, a one-person, one-boat co-op, you know. Now, um, it, 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 it's not that simple, but that's what it amounts to in America. Now, now, why is that? Well, because they were always seen as a Cold War threat. You know, here were people, whatever, however you wanted to phrase it, they were talking about the the people in community democratically owning and controlling um, the means of production. So, uh, but we want to make these links with our unions and co-ops around the world so that we can, we can um, build the critical mass of workers' capital uh, to uh, begin to um, at least create the models for the better world um, and, and to be able to put those in place uh, and, and so that when we march in the street, we are not simply saying no to government or employers, we are saying yes to our own social policies uh, that, that are built upon uh, collectivism, uh, solidarity, uh, the fact that we, we don't leave um, our wounded behind. We always take them with us and make sure we care for them. That's what the planet's demanding of us at the moment. Uh, it's demanding of capitalism, but capitalism can't, uh, it, 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 it simply can't do it, of course, because it's the cause of the, the, uh, the, the, the decline into a runaway climate emergency. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Look after each other. Talk to you next week. We'll go out with another wonderful song. Uh, yeah, I just want to say Thank you so much for coming out, really. And, uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, no. See, thanks for turning on. Sorry. Bring a love gift! Uh, in all seriousness, I love, I love it. I love it. It's one of my favourite things. It's, it's not probably, you know, well, yeah. And, um, it's just really good to be out, to be honest. And, um,
G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong, stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.